politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. Fellow patriots, taxpayers, and all-around law-abiding American citizens to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. And this truly is your one and only source of independent conservative news where the issues of the day that actually matter to our civilization are discussed. Uh, We could talk about impeachment all day. We could talk about uh, the great rhetorical barbs between the two sides of the political duopoly um, that both love themselves some criminals Or we could talk about actually changing this Coke Soros duopoly of loving criminals. I mean, you know, one of the things I said to one of my colleagues say on an editorial call is that when it comes to impeachment, no one even understands it. I mean, everyone understood the Clinton impeachment, you know, whether you agreed with it or not, everyone knew what that was. Okay, that that could be explained in one sentence. No one could really explain Ukraine, something, some ambassador uh, funding. Um, Try try playing this on your average friend and see what he answers is actually the source of contention here. But do you know what people do understand? They understand crime in their neighborhood. They understand safety and security. If there's ever an issue for which Republicans desperately need to use to win back suburban voters, this is the issue. This is the time. This is the place. We've talked about this a lot. Um, I want to get to this more in in hopefully a column tomorrow I'm going to write. Oklahoma. It's a state that has not voted for a Democrat presidential candidate even with one county, even one county of the state has not had a majority of its voters choose a Democrat since 2000. Red state, right? Yet thanks to this obsession on the so-called right, these Republican politicians, these Koch-funded think tanks with criminal justice reform, you literally have a dynamic in Oklahoma similar to that of California. They downgraded theft and drug offenses. And guess what? We have an increase of drugs and theft. Um, We might get that later today. If not, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more tomorrow. So this is not just a deep blue city issue. This is something that has permeated every single uh, every single state, all 50 states. Alaska got all into jailbreak. Crime exploded there. The governor actually repealed it. We're trying to get him on the show as well. Um, yesterday, very important article we will link to in show notes, op-ed in AL.com by that uh, the Alabama Attorney General, Steve Marshall, a friend of mine, who I hope to get on the show on Friday, uh, basically just punched criminal justice to form right in the face. And he said, Where, what, what is this? Who is this servicing? We have so much violent crime here in Alabama now. Um, he noted a lot of statistics that after so many years of decreased crime, um, crime's going up. In Alabama. So there are already many places where in our lifetime, when I thought if you would have asked me 10 years ago, I said, you know, we're going to take this straight to the end zone, you know, forever. We are never going to go back and we are going back. And that is very disturbing. I cannot think of an issue that is more consequential, yet at a political level is more bizarre than crime. I just I, I can't understand it. How all of my colleagues just went nuts. Within a matter of five years, 
they've gone from being sane to being to the left of Democrats just 10 years ago. Um, and when the evidence demonstrates that this is more of a problem, the gang problems are are worse than ever in many places, especially transnational gangs. The drug problem is is has been taken to a totally new new level since 2014 or so. And in general, certainly the petty crimes and public order crimes are going up, but a lot of violent crime, rapes, assaults, um, carjackings everywhere in my neighborhood. This is really what Americans should be talking about. With us today is a special guest, Raphael Manuel, who is really one of the 3.4 people working in public policy that are actually uh, putting out the truth on this, that are actually bucking the cool dude trend on, on jailbreak. He's a fellow and deputy director of legal policy at the Manhattan Institute. That's where uh, Heather McDonald works as well. We had her on a couple of weeks ago. He uh, writes articles for City Journal, terrific publication, um, lots of good articles there. Um, you should check it out. And he's authored a lot of op-eds in places like uh, the New York Post, which has been covering the New York uh, jailbreak and, and bail break uh, laws. Um, really is given a lot of good data. We're going to link to some of his work on on what is actually happening in terms of crime, incarceration, and and public safety. So with no further ado, it's an honor to bring Raphael on for the first time and hopefully not the last. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Look, it, it's always um, comforting to find uh, just someone else that sees the same thing and demonstrates that I'm not going nuts. Um, many times I feel like I'm insane. I just what I see in my world, which I think the average non elite public policy legal type of person, meaning your average citizen would see is this. That generally speaking. There are so many violent, destructive criminals in their community that are cycled in and out. They are not locked up for a long time. That for every one person that you could find is maybe over punished, there's a hundred others who are even more violent repeat offenders that are under punished. Um, if you ask people, do you think the system is generally speaking too tough or too weak on crime? Most people would say too weak on crime, except for maybe the 10, 15 percent at the very far left of America's political spectrum. Why is it? That nearly everyone, and I mean everyone, I mean Republicans in Oklahoma are talking like Soros that we have an over incarceration problem. We need to empty out the prisons. It's racially unjust. Uh, the American Conservative Union, which hosts the annual CPAC convention, a conservative gathering of record, had a whole gathering two weeks ago about the racial injustice. Don't you believe in second chances? Jesus believed in second chances. What is going on here? Well, I think uh, what's going on is that a lot of the debate is getting driven by a series of misconceptions, second chances being one of them, right? I mean, second chances sounds really great rhetorically, and it's an effective rhetorical device, um, but it doesn't really have much of a basis in the numbers, which show that the vast majority of people who uh, are in prison in the United States today have not only had their second chance, they've had a third, fourth <laughs> sometimes fifth or even sixth chance, and they've blown those chances time and again. Um, you know, I think part of why you're seeing such wide bipartisan support for some of these measures is that, um, you know, the folks on our side haven't really been all that great at, you know, really hammering this data home. Um, 
see, the thing about the criminal justice system is, is that there is room for reform. Um, there are certainly there's certainly some subset of America's prison population whose incarceration no longer serves a penological end or never did serve a legitimate penological end. And we should be seeking to identify who those people are. And, you know, we should be securing their releases, you know, post haste. And and yeah, our, our systems also failed to rehabilitate a lot of people. And, and there's certainly room for improvement there. Um, the problem is, is that uh, we haven't really done a great job of articulating the nuance there because addressing those problems means reforms at the margins. It means incremental reform. Um, unfortunately, some of these stories, you know, of, of terrible instances of over-incarceration have been taken, amplified, blown up much bigger than they are, and then they've been sold as you know, as representative of the general um, situation on the ground. And I think a lot of people have bought that hook, line, and sinker. And so, you know, what I try to do is just, you know, do my best to analyze the data and and explain um, to to folks and, you know, on both sides of the aisle, whoever will listen, um, you know, that this actually is not the case. You know, uh, low-level and drug crimes and public order offenses are not driving incarceration, right? Incarceration is driven almost entirely by very serious, violent criminals who are not only serious violent criminals, but they are also extremely likely to reoffend should they find their way back out onto the street, which they almost always do. Right? One of the things that people don't understand is that a prison sentence post conviction is one of the is a relatively rare um, sanction. Right? Only forty percent of fel- uh, state felony convictions result in a post conviction mm-hmm. prison sentence. Um, you know, incarceration is already reserved for the worst offenders committing the worst offenses. Um, you know, so in other words, that there's really not a whole lot of room for the levels of decarceration that I think people are trying to sell. You got, you know, folks like Van Jones supporting the, you know, Cut 50 initiative, which wants to have the prison population. Um, you've got the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU claiming that we can reduce the uh, incarcerated population by 40 percent across the board um, without any, you know, uh, public policy downside. Um and you know that the, the data just don't show that. Eighty-three percent of state prisoners are going to go on to reoffend at some point. More than a third of those uh, offenses are going to be violent in nature. Um, and you know that that's that's meaningful because when these people find their way back out into the streets, they're not going to go live in you know w- rich affluent areas where they're going to victimize you know white progressives. <laughs> they're going to go back um, you know to neighborhoods that are on the south side of Chicago and west side of Chicago and and. In, in Baltimore and you know the struggling neighborhoods in Philadelphia and St. Louis and Louisville and Houston, um, where they're going to victimize their neighbors who already have enough to deal with, right? I mean, these are already vulnerable and struggling communities, um, and that's who's going to bear the brunt of this. And I don't think that gets en- enough attention. And when you consider the fact that you know, for example, more than a third of, of violent felons commit their offenses while they're either on probation, parole, or out on bail. Um, you know, de- large-scale decarceration, whether it's through bail reform, um, prison reform, sentencing reform, or some combination of the three, is only going to exacerbate that problem of repeat offenders driving serious crime. No, exactly. And I think that's a good summation of what we're seeing. It's also the fact, and we're going to put this here up on the screen, our trusty chart that literally shows the crisscross effect of of incarceration and crime if using the uniform crime statistics you know it was going up and up and up crime was going up and up in the 70s and the 80s um we started locking people up in the 90s and boom you know it, it almost crisscrossed as as incarceration grew the crime plummeted and it was remarkable it was one of the most remarkable right. 
social trends in a positive way that we have actualized in our lifetime. It truly is remarkable. But then now what's interesting is the last five to 12 years, depending on the state, and it's really accelerated the last couple of years. And if, if you would follow the trajectory, if, if, if you and I are not successful in you know, yelling athwart history and saying stop, it's really going to accelerate. And that's very important because a lot of the data you and I, even that you put out and very good data, it's even old. It would prove our point even more if we had the up-to-date data because nobody is being incarcerated for a long time for almost anything now. Certainly not you know low-level drug offenses, even those that are out on probation who were originally locked up for worse things. And guess what? At best, in some places, it's plateaued. At worst, in many places, it's it's almost back to the um, 80s, like where I'm in Baltimore. Other places, um, like St. Paul, they're on track for record homicides in 2019. Um, you know, Alaska, San Diego, Chicago, Atlanta, just to name a few off the top of my head, the trend is reversing. So what I don't understand is if we are holding at that point and we see we've already enacted some of this stuff, wouldn't we want to say, hey, let's let this simmer before we have even more leniencies? Yeah, well, I think, you know, part of the problem is, is that across the country, at least if you aggregate the data, crime is, is still pretty low, generally speaking. Um, of course, aggregating crime data doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because no one experiences crime in the aggregate, right? Nobody lives in the aggregate. You live in a particular place at a particular time. And across the country, there's a lot of variance between uh, how dangerous particular places are at any given point in time. And so if you live in Chicago, but you live in the neighborhood of Lincoln Park or Lakeview, where I lived when I was in law school there, um, chances are things aren't going to change very much, irrespective of how the prison population in Illinois shifts up or down. Um, but if you live in Inglewood or Austin on the west side, the, you know, the, the, you're going to see a lot more changes, right? Uh, those places are a lot, the elasticity there um, is, is much more visible. And this is something that I do think gets ignored, right? If you take uh, California, for example, where they've had two uh, pretty prominent criminal justice reforms in Prop 47 and justice realignment. Prop 47, you know, is the, the basics of what it did was it, it raised the threshold for uh, theft felony charges, right? So now you got to steal something like $1,000. Oklahoma did the exact same thing, 500 to 1000 yeah. Right. Um, and then justice realignment uh, addressed a court case that found that the California state prisons were unconstitutionally overcrowded. And so it shifted a lot of inmates um, into the custody of, of county jails and, and ultimately released a lot of inmates. And so there have been some assessments of these things done. And what they've those assessments have found is that, well, crime in California did not go up as a result of this. But the unit of measurement here is important. The unit of measurement that they're using is the state of California. But the problem is, is that you would never expect crime to go up across the entire state, right? And so when you talk to some of these researchers, they'll acknowledge that there's a shortfall in their work, which is that the statewide unit of measurement could end up and likely does mask really important variations at the local level, which is exactly where you would expect those variations to manifest themselves. So, you know, this is something that you, you know, we kind of have to be careful of. We saw this, you know, in, in New York with the assessments of stop and frisk, right? Several studies were done of, of the New York City Police Department's uh, stop and frisk practices and what they showed 
you know, was that uh, was that stop and frisk wasn't having a measurable impact on crime. And then in 2014, um, a, a more accurate study was done that was you know you could, it was called a microgeographic analysis that looked at. Um, the very kind of specific places where the New York City Police Department was concentrating its resources and doing the majority of stops and frisks, which were high crime areas. And if you looked at those places, they were actually crime rates were actually much more uh, affected by stop and frisk policies. In fact, they found a very statistically significant impact uh, on crime in the form of deterrence. So, you know, the the unit of measurement is important here. And uh, I, I think one of the things we have to be careful of moving forward um, in terms of, you know, challenging some of these, um, you know, misguided reforms is, you know, paying attention to when these folks are aggregating data uh, in situations in which it suits them. Um, sure. That that to me is, is going to be really uh, an important part of the analysis moving forward. Well, I, I think honestly, uh, part of it is they're letting their guard down because there's no opposition. I mean, you're looking at the opposition to the first step back right here. Um, it's pretty much me, myself and I, uh, and I don't mean to say that in, in a arrogant way. Um, so a lot of times it's like, they don't even care. It's like the prison's too much, cut it. Like they're not even trying to defend, you know, the, the, you know, the criminal issues, um, the crime. And as you mentioned very rightfully about California, it's hard to get data across the board. There's a protest in our lobby, I think. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, is that a, is that a Antifa or criminal justice? Well, you know what? I'm not sure. You, you, you know what? Uh, you know, you know what often happens? These people that get let out of jail, um, they become political activists like that drug trafficker that, <laughs> that was saying Cuomo for president. But anyway, no, what That's I was saying funny. is San Diego, we have the data. It's violent crime has been up five straight years. California has also been up. It's just the last year or two it turned back down. But that's already see, that's isn't that a problem already? Because to me, the equivalent of going back up is not going to be as sharp as in the 80s because the technology to apprehend people, the cameras, the facial recognition software, it's a lot easier to catch people than it was back in the day where if you're in a dark alley and you carjack someone, unless you get lucky, there's not going to be a witness and whereas now with so many of these people that catch on cameras. So, yes, we should be continuing to actualize a decline. But if you're not deterring them with punishment on the back end, then, um, you know, it's going to cut into the gains that you make technologically. And I and I my concern is that's what we're seeing now. So I want you to take this to New York. That's where you've done a lot of your research, a lot of your writing. Again, New York. You look at the data, it's still viewed as a success story, certainly as compared to sure. Baltimore. But my problem is if you just look anecdotally, if you look at all the stories we're seeing from cops standing back, subway violence, homelessness, drugs, heck, even the squeegees are back, which was like, you know, that was the symbol of the Dinkins yeah. era, you know, and Giuliani got rid of them. And that kind of was the catalyst for the broken windows policing. I'm not going to say we're back to the 80s, but it's hard to imagine that we're as good as we were 10 years ago. 
Yeah, look, I mean, New York has made significant progress on violent crime, uh, especially. And, you know, while the, the data do certainly point in the direction that violent crime has been ticking up ever so slightly um, over the last year or two, um, but we are seeing a lot more kind of public order offenses concentrated in certain parts of the city, I do think that we should find that troubling. Um, you know, and again, when you look at New York, one of the things you have to do is is kind of zoom in to particular areas, right? Because if you zoom out, the fact of the matter is, is that New York has just significantly fewer dangerous neighborhoods today than it did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago, right? So the why that's important is because, well, low crime populations are not going to become high crime populations uh, when you take punishments off the table, right? Because they're not committing crimes anyway. Um, so these aren't the sort of people that you need to uh, deter. And you know, the fact of the matter is, is that the the low crime population in New York has grown a significant amount as a result of several factors. I mean, for you know, for one thing, we we extracted a lot of criminal actors from from some of the more dangerous areas, which allowed um, the good law abiding people in those neighborhoods to thrive and and lower the chances that they themselves would become involved in the criminal justice system. But the safety in those areas also made those areas more attractive to people from uh, other parts of New York City and from outside the city and state altogether to move in, mm. which again, you know, um, brought a lot more economic development, um, brought a lot more people. And all those things put together essentially work to fortify those areas um, such that they are no longer as responsive to shifts in criminal justice policy as maybe some of the other more dangerous parts of the city are, like you know, Brownsville, Brooklyn, for example. Um, what this means is that you know, we can't simply just look at crime trends across the city, um, put them up against you know, a various uh, you know, criminal justice reforms that have been enacted, and then conclude on that basis alone that the criminal justice reforms that we're talking about haven't had a negative impact or haven't rolled back some of that progress. Um, you've got to do, you know, a, a, a more careful analysis that controls for all these things. And I think when you do that, you'll find that, yeah, at least in the places that are still kind of vulnerable uh, to crime increases, we are seeing um, some important upticks, you know, places like East Harlem and, um, you know, and, and the, the some of the northern precincts in the Bronx and, and Brownsville, Brooklyn, East New York, um, where there was a, a broad daylight shooting yesterday in which uh, both a school bus and an MTA bus were hit with with gunfire at about nine o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, this is this is not a, a good, good sign. Again, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sounding the alarm here saying that this is, you know, that we're back, you know, to the Gotham of, of the 1990s when we had 2000 murders a, the, uh, a year. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we should continue down this road. I, I do think we ought to be very careful um, about risking the gains that we've fought really hard to 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 make to make. And, and that's the thing. It's th this is what I don't like. You mentioned at the beginning of the show, you know, no, no system is perfect and you could always get within the margin. So if you have, you know, it should be like this and it doesn't match up perfectly. It's like this. So you want to focus a little bit at the bottom of the tail, but then you have to have sure. a balanced approach at the top. So, all right. So right. maybe there's some people that don't have to be incarcerated, but what about the loads of people that still aren't? And I want to go through some of your data mixed with some of some stuff I've dug up. So, and again, we're going to link to this in show notes, um, folks. This is um, at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, he he did a uh, an analysis about a month ago that is really the motherload of data. It's the best I've seen out there. 
But who's in prison? Okay, so we could argue about criminology, you know, what's out on the street. That's very hard. That's not defined. But, you know, in prison, that's hard data. That's a confined population. So you can look at what they're there. Sixty percent of state prisoners are serving time for merely the big merely uh, five, five things. Murder, rape, assault, robbery or burglary. That is four times the number of those convicted only for drug offenses. And again, these are those serving time. For that thing at that time, many of the ones serving for other things really were doing that, too. This is what they're in you know, at that moment. But they had priors. But yet, despite the fact that it's full of so many violent people, still, if you take that entire universe, you write this less than 15 percent of state felony convictions result in more than two years served in prison. So nothing draconian, even 20 percent of those in prison for murder. Um, and nearly 60% of those in prison for rape or sexual assault serve less than five years. I could tell you from the illegal alien sex offender cases we've gone through just from a sanctuary standpoint, I was like, wait a minute, Forget, forgetting about the fact that you don't give them over the ice. These people don't serve any time. Some of them serve what they call intensive sex offender probation. Um, I mean, right. literally nothing doing there in all fewer than one in five American prisoners are primarily incarcerated for drug offenses and and uh, only three point five percent of state prisoners and less than one percent of federal prisoners are for simple possession. And almost all of those are because they pled down their prior history. Um, and uh, exactly. the, one more thing, U.S. Department of Justice reports that from 2003 to 2009, only 40% of state felony convictions resulted in any prison sentence. So I look at this as what we have. Then I look at the fact, and I apologize, I don't have this in front of me, but if you look at the clearance rates, okay, just of murder, rape, aggravated assault, and armed robbery, according to FBI Uniform Crime, it's something like 70,000 robbery cases seven eight thousand murder cases several hundred thousand assaults several hundred thousand rapes go completely uncleared now you have tons of cases where a guy is brought in for a rape and he's charged with you know residential burglary ultimately or convicted ultimately that's a cleared case even though he's very under incarcerated I look at this and to me, it's like this is the violent crime problem being undeterred. And maybe on the other side of the ledger, this is the problem of maybe people over incarcerated. Yet a hundred percent of the focus is on that. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is again, this is I think it's a, a misconception. If you talk to a lot of people, even even in the activist community, I think some of them are are somewhat surprised to hear these numbers. I don't think um, that they've really dug in um, to these numbers all that much, um, you know, at, at least when it comes to some of the, the more prominent media voices. Now, I mean, look, you can certainly look at these numbers and, and disagree with me and say, like, well, I, I still think, you know, the, the the freedom gain that we get from decarceration is, is worth the risk, but be honest about that risk. And, you know, again, we're not dealing, we're not talking about, when we talk about incarceration, we're not talking about a low risk population, right? The vast majority of these people is, as, as you just pointed out, are, are in for very serious offenses. They're extremely likely to reoffend. Um, and, and again, those serious offenses often understate 
the severity of the crimes they actually committed, as you pointed out, right? I mean, 90 something percent of cases across the United States um, that result in a conviction are plea bargains. Oh, yeah. Right. These aren't these aren't trials where they're facing the full freight of, of, of you know, the, the initial charges. Right. I mean, in order to get somebody to induce somebody to plea bargain, they're often extended a very substantial benefit in the form of either uh, a shortened sentence or downgraded offenses or, you know, having charges dropped altogether such that, you know, when you look at a prison population's records and you say, well, this person's serving time primarily for a drug offense, that person could also have been armed at the time of his arrest, could have violently resisted, um, you know, could have uh, committed other offenses that were ultimately dropped during the course of the prosecution. There's no real way to know that. Um, and so, again, I, I do think ultimately, um, you know, we face kind of an under incarceration problem as to at least some subset of the prison population that's there. And then, as you note, you know, when it comes to index offenses, right, 45 percent of the violent index offenses go un, are, are cleared. Right. So more than half are uncleared in a given year. Um, when it comes to the property index offenses, only about 17% of those are cleared in a given year, right? So you've got, you know, millions of offenses going unanswered for in a given year, which means that even if you accepted that the only crimes for which people should go to jail are very serious yeah. felonies or prison are very serious felonies, well, the reality is, is that most of those uh uh, felonies going answer for, which means that in any given year, you've got, yeah. you know, several hundred thousand people at least. In other, in other words, Raphael, let, let's say, let's say, shouldn't we all agree? I mean, you would think we would all agree. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God would give us the power to successfully get every robber and murderer and rapist? If you would only get those people and then never lock up anyone for drugs, mind you, so many of them are violent gangbangers, yada, yada, but leave that aside. The population would swell. So the entire foundational premise that there is a over incarceration po problem and we're going to steer all of our public policy debate around that is bogus. Let me just ask you the 800 pound gorilla question really on, on this issue, which is. So people will inevitably ask, all right, Daniel, that you're, you're right. We have a heck of a lot of violent crime. So they'll ask, why is it? Why is it that when you look at other first world developed countries, it's just, you know, everyone complains like, oh, my gosh, our prison population dwarfs theirs. And we're like, well, what do you mean? I mean, it reflects the crime rates and if anything, it's under it. So why why do you see that disparity uh, compared to the global population? It's a Hard question to answer. I mean, you know, I do think culture has a lot to do with it. Um, I do think there's a violent subculture that permeates a lot of, of, of cities uh, across the United States that, that drives and feeds a lot of this crime. Um, you know, one of the, the, the scholars who's done some really good work on this and has influenced my thinking on it quite a bit is, is Barry Latzer, um, who's a criminologist, uh, professor emeritus now um, at John Jay. He wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of Violent Crime in America, mm. which is, you know, a really fantastic volume wherein he posits a cultural explanation for at least uh, a good chunk of the violent crime problem in the United States. And he does this by looking at something um, called the crime adversity mismatch theory, um, which is a theory that he really helped popularize and, and develop. Um, and what it does is it basically, it tries to answer the critique um, that a lot of 
sort of left-leaning criminal justice reformers have of American society, which is that, well, you know, the inequality and the socioeconomic uh, disadvantage that a lot of uh, low-income communities face is responsible for a good chunk, if not all, of the sort of crime uh, that we see yep. sort of driving our prison population. Our um, mayor here in Baltimore just said that. Um, right. the, the poor, Jack Young, mayor of Baltimore said, yeah, it's, it's the poor. It's a problem of it being poor. Right. But the thing is, though, is that most poor people are not criminals, right? Um, in fact, uh, the vast majority of them are, are law-abiding citizens. And when you you know you look at different culturally identifiable groups and you control for socioeconomic status, you actually find pretty disparate rates of criminal offending, especially when it comes to violent criminal offending. Um, you know, which which hints at a, a, a at least partial cultural explanation. Um, you know what what you can do about that through public policy. I'm not sure. My I tend to have a pretty limited view of the capacity sure. of, of of government actors to change culture, and I'm not even sure that's a, a an end that they should be pursuing. pursuing yeah. uh, but you know that that is a reality, and I do think that drives you know, a good chunk of that disparity. I mean, and look, and other freedoms that that we have are you know also going to impact this right i mean um there there are a lot more guns in private hands in the united states which which means that it's easier for criminals to get their hands on them um you know at least some people would argue that that the benefits outweigh the the downside on that because you know at least some of the data show that uh guns are used defensively more often than they are um in crimes, but you know we have the Fourth Amendment, and you know the 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 a lot of sort of barriers to to criminal prosecution, which sure. raise the transaction costs of engaging in that, which means that you know you have again, the Fourth Amendment, but you also have judicial supremacy too, which takes the Fourth Amendment and goes, you know, and ex- I mean, right, every right. year the Supreme Court, I mean, even the so-called conservative Supreme Court with Neil Gorsuch in particular, very libertarian, really, really poking holes and and um, arm career criminal act um that thing's going to be gone in a couple years um no you're right there's a lot of barriers and it's very important the other big thing that you know a lot of people don't want to talk about but i would say they do talk about every republican oriented right-leaning guy that i find that's bought into this among the top two motivations is race um what is very to to call a spade a spade what is very enticing to them is that in their mind they feel they get to finally propose what they think is cutting spending never mind the cost of crime but whatever cut spending and for once not run up against the inveterate um lobbyists and constituencies Ethnic lobbies, oh, you're cutting welfare, you're harming this group and that group. Here, I get to ingratiate myself to them. So th- so what they do is they build a whole thing that it's a subset of the over-incarceration argument is that blacks are over-incarcerated. Now, you can't see this, but you'll see it on, in the, in the uh, when we publish the report here, um, publish the show, I mean. We have our chart here, which we love putting up because it's very accurate. Um, your colleague, uh, Heather McDonald, used this data. The National Crime Victimization Survey of 2018. Okay. We have here black on white crime, 547,948 incidents in 2018. White on black, 59,700 78 
that's that's pretty much one tenth, even though whites are what, four or five times greater share of the population. Um, just you look at the numbers, it's astounding. Brand new FBI numbers from last month uh, for 2018. Out of the 11,514 homicides, a whopping 55% were um, black offenders, although roughly the same amount black victims, which is important to note. Right. Um, well, that see, that right there actually is the most important thing to note, yeah. right? For the people who frame this discussion in terms of race, um, you know, they always focus on the racial disparities in enforcement numbers and in enforcement trends. They <laughs> never talk about the racial disparities in victimization. And that really is the key because that's what drove ultimately a good chunk of the sort of tough on crime reforms that we saw in the 80s and 90s. If you look at something like the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, for example, which is now almost universal universally derided as the single most racist piece of legislation <laughs> because it established a 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine. Look at who co-sponsored that bill. Not Charlie Rangel. But co-sponsored it. 16 of the 19 members of the Congressional Black Caucus co-sponsored the Anti-Drug yep. Abuse Act of 1986. Charlie Rangel debated white conservative William F. Buckley in 1990 <laughs> on the question of drug legalization, wherein Charlie Rangel not only opposes legalization, but actually proposes life in prison for drug dealers. Um, if you read some of the black newspapers, and my colleague Jason Riley had a great column on this in the Wall Street Journal today, if you read some of the black newspapers in Harlem and, and other black communities around the country in the 80s and 90s and in the 70s as well, you'll see actually that those communities were fed up with the violent crime problem, wanted more, more policing, wanted more serious criminal sanctions, um, because it was those communities that were being victimized. In fact, if you go back, you know, as recently as, as the late 90s, and you listen to, you know, hip hop music or, you know, some of the follow some of the cultural commentary in those days, the 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 argument for why policing was racist then was that they weren't responsive to crime <laughs> in black communities, right? There was always the you know the running joke that you know if you called nine one one from a white uh, in a white community they would respond faster than in a black community. Now somehow it's been inverted <laughs> and police are racist for you know for for, for over policing or, or or you know occupying um, communities of color and and so I you know I really do. Uh, I, I do take offense uh, when when people make this a racial issue by focusing on an enforcement and ignoring um, the really drastic racial disparities and victimization, because those are the people who are going to pay the price for this sort of leniency. And, and, and here's the irony. If you look down the list, so responsible for 55 percent of the murder off offenses, 54 percent of robbery, 34 percent of aggravated assault, 43 percent of weapons violations. Um 37.4% of total violent crime, yet, despite the complaints about black imprisonment, they only accounted for 33% of state and federal inmates. That's actually lower, and, and the trajectory shows that they're dropping quicker than any other group. And yet, I right. noticed that actually for drugs, it's still greater than their share of the population, which is like 12%, but it's like in the 20s. It's actually lower than for the, the violent crimes. And then you look at the juveniles. So black youth were responsible for 58% of juvenile murders, 64% of juvenile robberies, 41% of juvenile aggravated assaults, and, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, what they're really doing is in order to placate a subset of violent young black youth that commit most of the crimes, they are harming the overwhelming majority of not everyone, but particularly African-Americans 
where I live, look, you know, we're getting in the suburbs, the carjackings, you know, all the spillover, but those dead bodies in Baltimore city, they're all black. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, again, you know, um, I think my colleague Heather McDonald put it you know, quite well when she said that the institution most dedicated to the proposition that black lives matter is the police. Because if you think about, you know, the, the lives saved over the great crime decline of the 1990s, um, it was black Americans that were the greatest beneficiaries of that. I mean, I would urge your listeners to read um, a book uh, called Uneasy Peace by Patrick Sharkey. Mm-hmm. Now, Patrick Sharkey and I would disagree on the policy, and and uh, very, you know, he, he is very much in favor of decarceration and depolicing, and I think he's wrong on all that. But the front end of his book runs through a lot of the data that shows exactly how black America benefited from the great crime decline. And so, you know, it just seems odd to me um, – you know, that, that, that folks, uh, like you and myself receive criticisms, uh, you know, for, for being racially insensitive, insensitive for, you know, sort of supporting tougher sanctions for criminal actors when those sanctions are like more likely to incapacitate criminals that are more likely to victimize, um, you know, black Americans living in poor, vulnerable areas around the country. And, uh, you know, that's something I, I really do think needs to get pushed back on, um, because again, crime is not experienced in the aggregate. It's not evenly distributed across the United no. States. It is concentrated in very, uh, it's very hyper-concentrated in very, uh, you know, uh, urban geographical areas in the United States. Um, I mean, if you just take Baltimore and Chicago by themselves, those two cities accounted for less than one or for about 1% of the, the country's population and 5% of the country's mm. murders. And when you consider the fact that the murder problem is hyper-concentrated within those cities, yeah. you're probably looking at something like half uh, a percent of the country's population and still about 5% of the country's murders, right? So, I mean, this is this is a real problem for a very specific uh, subset of Americans. And, uh, you know, I think we do them a disservice if we, you know, uh, don't push back on, on that false narrative. So you've given us a lot of time here and we're almost out of time. I really appreciate it. I want to just move to the end of this discussion. We talked a lot about the sentencing and the prison population and just the the myth about over incarceration, the lies about downright lies about what's in prison. But the other half of it, you just said crime has always been hyper concentrated. So that gets to the front end policing. Could you talk a little bit about the current trends? I'm very disturbed by what I'm seeing, certainly here in Baltimore, but it seems like in a lot of other places where cops are basically walking on eggshells, where it's almost like. Whereas, you know, heck, even someone as left wing as Martin O'Malley, when he was mayor of Baltimore 15 years ago, he was bragging about arrests. Now it's like almost a stigma against arresting. They're caught in very tough situations. More than ever, the belligerents in the neighborhoods they want to police are on very, very dangerous drugs. So which makes them even with a little common sense, they would have to be deterred. Let's say if they would draw their weapon, now they'll charge at them. What are you seeing some of the trends? I'm seeing these review boards pop up to, you know, mandate that you have independent review boards. What are you seeing that and and the effect on police morale in New York and other places? Yeah, I mean, I do think, again, you know, just just like when you analyze crime, I think when you analyze policing um, and the impact of, of the national rhetoric 
on policing, you have to, you know, look at particular places at particular times, particular departments under particular circumstances. Um, so I think, you know, when you look at places like Chicago and Baltimore uh, and New York, where a lot of this um, sort of vitriol has been directed, I think you do see an impact on morale. And I've written about this um, as to New York uh, and Chicago and Baltimore. I mean, in Baltimore, you know, a lot of police activity has gone through the floor. In some cases, uh, it's gone down as much as 70 percent when it comes to police initiated stops um, and crime has gone up as a result. Um, you know, and, and you, you can see that that decline coincides almost perfectly with the protests in response to Freddie Gray in, in Chicago. Um, the protests in response uh, both to Ferguson and and to um, uh, the uh, Laquan McDonald shooting. Um, you know, again, you saw a significant downtick in, in police activity in 2016. And um, two uh, criminologists, uh, Paul Cassell and Richard Fowles, did a really great study that was published in the University of Illinois Law Review earlier this year, found that of the 270-something additional murders that, that Chicago saw in 2016, when it had a nearly 60% spike in murders, 245 of them were attributable solely to the decline in police activity in that city. Um you know, when you consider how proactive policing really helped drive the crime decline in New York, um, I do worry about what this this kind of growing uh, anti-police rhetoric um, is going to do for other cities that are more vulnerable to crime increases as a result of shifts in, in, in policing and criminal justice policy more broadly. No, and, and, and one of the things that concerns me, and I'm not sure if you're seeing this statistically, but again, I'm trying to reconcile why, why the Uniform crime reporting, which did show crime ticking up in starting in 2015, went down 2018. I would bet money on it going up in 2019 based on what I'm seeing. But the BJS um, crime victimization survey did show crime going up. Um, they have here the increase from 2015 to 2018 and the number of non a number of violent uh, crime victims age 12 or older. Uh, grew from 2.7 million to 3.3 million, was driven by increases in the number of victims of rape or sexual assault, aggravated assault, and simple assault. Um, and uh, where are we here from 2015, 2018? The number of persons who were victims of violent crime as well as the percentage of persons who were victims of violent crime increased among the total population. Um, what I'm worried about is, and I think I'm seeing that where I am, again, Baltimore is kind of a special basket case here, but what I'm seeing is that it's known in Baltimore that police are hands off. I mean, that is known because they're basically told they're going to get prosecuted. So they're being hands off. Is it possible that we're achieving the worst of all results where crime is actually going up in some places, but it's not being fully reported because we've gotten so much in the criminal justice so-called reform uh, side of the pendulum that they're not even identifying the crimes because they're just taking a hands-off approach. Yeah, I mean that that could be part of it. Um, I haven't seen that in the mm -hmm. data, you know, so I'm I'm, I'm hesitant to sure. to say one way or the other whether that's the case. Um, my guess is that it's probably more likely that you know the nicer parts of the country are just continuing uh, the crime decline mm -hmm. that they've already been doing, and that that continuation is just outpaced. Um, you know, the, the crime uptick. So again, you know, the aggregate statistics, I never really um, pay very close attention wow. to because I don't think they can ever end up telling you all that much. I mean, you know, if you think about the national murder rate, right, the national murder rate is five per 100,000. If you just take, you know, 
uh, the, 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 the South and West sides of Chicago, you're looking at, you know, a murder rate of probably somewhere around 50 per 100,000. Baltimore is, is 56. And, that, and that's city, exactly. citywide is 56. And that's citywide, right? So if you concentrated just on some of the worst districts, um, you know, in Baltimore, you're going to get places, you know, with, with murder rates over 70 per 100,000 is my guess. Um, you know, so again, you know, those national numbers, I, I really don't think tell us anything that's, that's particularly important. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of variance between time and place um, across the country when it comes to the likelihood that you're going to be victimized. Um, you know, Chicago is, is, is known as a relatively dangerous city, and it certainly has one of the you know, more dangerous large geographical areas in the country. Um, but it remains to be true that, you know, at 2 a.m., I can walk around Millennium Park with a $100 bill taped to my forehead and be just fine. Mm. Um, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, crime is hyper concentrated in that city. And so, you know, the aggregation numbers uh, don't really tell you anything particularly useful at the end of the wow. day. But um, that, that, that's a really important point, because, I mean, my concern is that people, in order to finally stop this jailbreak stampede are going to have to see, you know, these massive macro increases. But you're right that, you know, the same in when you have 25 years of downward trajectory on crime year after year, that means and you could debate what is driving that, but that there are some very enduring factors that are driving that. So you're not going to turn that back across the board. If you have enduring factors, if it's technology, if it's cultural, sure. Um, but it's going to be hyper concentrated in certain areas. So the 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 abolish bail, the reducing incarceration, prison sentencing, uh, hands off policing. If you start seeing areas of major cities going up, that demonstrates, I think, our point that no, I mean, just because it's not going up across the board, it's a problem. That's um, right. Last question. Uh, we're almost out of time. Um, weapons violations. What I find amazing is that, you know, people on the left are very concerned about gun violence. I and mean, that, that's a big issue. Right. Right. What I'm what I'm shocked about is like when you find like really bad dudes, I mean, like the worst of the worst, they're let out on parole and they're caught with felony possession. There is such right. a reluctance to lock them up. Are you are you seeing that same thing? Oh, I'm saying so. I actually wrote a piece um, about this about a year ago, maybe a few months ago. Um, I think the title of the piece was something like "Are Democrats Serious About Gun Crime?" Uh, basically, you know, calling uh, some of the more liberal Democrats out for, you know, not addressing um, the incongruity between their support for gun control aimed at reducing gun violence and their support for. These more radical criminal justice reforms, which are almost perfectly calculated to maximize gun violence, right? Um, I think Michael Bloomberg, should he enter the race, is going to face this very problem of having to square the unsquarable, which is, you know, the signature issue of a, of a Bloomberg campaign will almost certainly have to be gun control and reducing gun violence. But he's signaling with his remarks on stop and frisk that he's actually going to take the the progressive line on criminal justice, which is going to mean more likely gun offenders on the street. How he squares those two things, I, I will. I, I will Will enjoy watching him twist himself into pretzels to do that, um, but but it is a real problem. Um, unfortunately, it's just something they don't get called out on all that much. But there's a there's a real inconsistency there. It shocks me Republicans don't rhetorically jujitsu that whole thing because like you like you talked about with one of the factors that America is different than Europe. Let's say is yes the you know massively uh, greater uh, private gun ownership. But I mean I think what some of us would argue is well if you had our crime policies. 
Yes, I mean, you identify bad people, not items. Wars on items don't work, but wars on, you know, bad people, because that's kind of what a real war is. You're fighting people um, kind of does work. And when you have known violent people that are caught with felony possession and sometimes even like I joke around in Maryland and it's not it's not a joke in my neighborhood. We have open and concealed carry in Maryland. Well, what, what does it mean? It means that if you are assaulting people with a deadly weapon, you don't go to prison. So, I mean, I can't. Yeah, I, I can't carry. We, we're not allowed to do concealed or open carry here. Um, very rarely could you get a permit. But they seem to be able to do it and they don't get thrown in right. jail. So, I mean, right. it just that's what's driving a ton of it in Chicago. Chicago is very into that with the parole and they're all caught with firearms. Drugs usually goes hand in hand. Um, that's right. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you look at, um, if you look at, uh, you know, um, people in, in, in Chicago who have been arrested for either homicides or shootings, something like close to 40% of them had, uh, uh, or sorry, in Baltimore, uh, close to 40% of, of homicide suspects in Baltimore had a prior gun offense. Mm. Um, you know, so that's, you know, again, if we're not serious, if we're serious about gun crime, I think we have to get serious about punishing gun offenders and likely gun offenders. Um, and, and that's going to mean walking back some of the more radical criminal justice reforms that have, that have become, uh, you know, sort of popular. Otherwise it just means that literally on my street, we had a carjacking armed carjacking and, uh, I can't step out in front of my own property with my gun, um, to defend myself. And that, that, that's the, that's the most lethal mix of all, um, Raphael, thanks so much. I mean, it's it's so much better doing this with two. It's it's an awfully lonely world out there. Um, but I think the silent majority really uh, stands with us. Um, just not in the elite world. We're going to have you back regularly as you post your content. Where could people find more of your work? Uh, well, they can follow me on on Twitter at Rafa underscore Mangual, M-A-N-G-U-A-L. They can um, follow the Manhattan Institute's website, manhattan-institute.org. Um, I'm also a contributing editor of City Journal, where I write a lot of these articles, and that's uh, www.city-journal.org. Perfect. Rafael Manuel, thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, we really look forward to it, and uh, this was very enlightening. Take care. Bye. And, you know, wasn't that enlightening? Wasn't that better than watching the stupid impeachment hearings? This affects our future more than any other issue. And uh, we have a lot, a lot, a lot of work cut out for us, really. When you look at states like Oklahoma being as radical on this issue as California, we got a major problem. And uh, not quite sure what to do about it other than continue to expose the lies for what they are. And, And that's the story. And, you know, this gets back to our quote yesterday I just want to correct the, the record. Yesterday, we had a show titled Built Upon a Line That Republicans Are Really Progressives Driving the Speed Limit. And I said I saw that on Twitter earlier yesterday morning, and I forgot who it was. So um, one individual, um, his name is Michael Malice, actually contacted me on Twitter and said it, you know, it was him. I, I think I still might have seen it from someone else, but I'm assuming that other person must have gotten it from his book. It's evidently in his book. And I always want to give credit. So um, you could see here on the screen, Michael Malice, where to follow him on Twitter. Um, if you want to read his book and, and see what else uh, he does. Uh, yeah, I think he has a show as well. Um, I certainly don't like stealing other people's work. You know, we're very original here, which is why we mentioned I 
got it from somewhere else. Just uh, forgot to mention the name, and I'm glad he uh, contacted me. Uh, Look, this week is just starting, but it's almost over. Uh, We will delve into some other issues tomorrow, and hopefully we will have another special guest on Friday. Thank you for listening. God bless. Until next time, this has been another episode of the Conservative Review Podcast. 